My name is Jeremy Preston. I'm filling in for Leon today. Joining me in studio is Piers Robinson, one of the most learned people studying propaganda. It's history and its manipulative use and the changes in culture that are being influenced by the control and the shaping of information. One of the executive members of Panda and the editor of the online magazine called Propaganda in Focus. I'm excited to dive into this fascinating conversation. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Dr. Piers Robinson, it is so good to have you on our show today. Thank you for joining us. Okay, it's a pleasure to be with you. As we were diving through a lot of your content, there's, I gotta say, there's a lot, there's a lot to go through here, and I wanna make sure that we can kind of pick your brain, kind of walk out some of these concepts when it comes to propaganda. So what would you say, um, what would you say just, what is propaganda? Well, the way I define propaganda is that it's a form of persuasion. So it's a form, a, a way of manipulating people's thoughts, beliefs, and also behavior, which operates in what I define as a non-consensual way. Yeah. Okay, so it's trying to get people to think something uh, through perhaps deception or to behave in a particular way by incentivizing them or even coercing them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always against their own free will, and it's not a rational process of, of persuasion, for example. It's essentially manipulation. And that's distinguishable from, as it were, persuasion through consensual means, where you try to honestly give the facts and the information to somebody and give them a choice as to whether they want to believe something or not. Um, there are others who tend to go for the argument that, but all persuasion is propaganda. Any any kind of attempting to get your argument across. But I I don't think for me that's not a very helpful um, way of understanding it. Propaganda and certainly the way it's come to be understood throughout the course of the twentieth century is that it is a manipulative, non-consensual process. Um, and and I like to keep sort of a space in there for saying, well, yeah, you can persuade people without engaging in propaganda. You can you know, go out there and give people all the facts and then try and put your case forward as honestly and accurately as you can and hope yeah. that people will be won over. Um, and that's still persuasion. What's the argument for persuasion? Because um, if someone's standing on a road and a car is heading their way and I'm trying to persuade them to get off the road, um, how can they even begin to argue that that's propaganda? If it's, if it's factual, I guess that's the question. Oh, if, yes, if, if it's factual and it's accurate, it's not propaganda. It's if, if you're warning somebody, if you're ringing the alarm bells that they're about to be harmed, for example, yeah. and it's true, then that's not propaganda. That's giving people the information they need in order yeah. to act accordingly. It's, it's when you're telling somebody that there's a, a steam train coming at you and there isn't one yeah, yeah. <laughs> and getting you to act. That's, that's where you get into the territory of deception and propaganda. Yeah, so I guess it, it, it all hinges on the fact if it's a fact or if it's true because i find whoever controls the knowledge has a tremendous amount of power and, and that's that seems to be the trend in politics in um every if you can control and and not even just necessarily controlling knowledge but also leading with fear it almost is, is fear seems to be the driving factor for propaganda so what would you say like what has history shown us about propaganda what, what is there to learn in in what history has shown us well, of, of course, throughout the 20th century, um, the, the use of propaganda was, was, has been widespread and it's been refined as well. 
And you can see it sort of with the emergence of mass communication and mass literacy. You can see um, with people such as Eddie Bernays, Walter Lippmann, openly discussing in, in the first part of the 20th century uh, the importance of manipulating the minds of publics. Yeah. And this was, in, in a way, this is quite an elitist conception of democracy. And it was the idea that, well, the masses, you can't have too much democracy and populations need to be managed and led to a significant degree. And so this informed a lot of early thinking and theorizing about propaganda and about how it can be used. And um, in the First World War and the Second World War, of course, propaganda used extensively. Um, it was, in fact, the case that following uh, the way the Germans had used propaganda in the First World War, that Edward Bernays, who's considered mm -hmm. the founding father of public relations, um, is, is, is cited as having said, well, we had a problem with use, continuing to use the word propaganda in order to explain our activities because people, because the Germans had given it a bad name in yeah. the First World War. And so he said we had to come up with a, a new term, a rebranding, and that's yeah. where public relations comes from. And so what you see, you see the kind of, sort of sidelining of the term propaganda and the increasing use of terms such as public relations, and then really an entire euphemism industry, um, which informs, you know, so when we think of advertising, when we think of strategic communication or perception management, political communication, etc. Um, these are all essentially other ways of describing techniques yeah. which had historically been uh, labeled as propaganda. But you've also seen, you know, in commerce, in the commercial world, you've seen the use of propaganda. Um, famously, I think it was Eddie Bernays um, sort of advised on the campaigns to encourage women to smoke cigarettes in the yeah. early part of the 20th century. And then, as some have pointed out, that the tobacco industry spent considerable resources on propaganda trying to to stem emerging understanding of the link between smoking and cancer, for example. So you have industry and commerce employing propaganda uh, tools of manipulation to try to shore up their own interests. Um, so, and th those are some of the big examples, certainly from the 20th century. Um, come the 21st century, in, in the realm of international politics and war, the global war on terror has been asso associated with very high levels of propaganda. And now as we go into the COVID phase, um, we've grown rec recognition across multiple spheres that um, propaganda has been used extensively. And, and it's kind of, it's a slippery slope is um, if you question things a little too much, you're kind of pushed into the conspiracy series side and, 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 and there, is, there is a ditch over on that side, but there's also a ditch on the other side of questioning nothing. So what would be your suggestion to somebody when interpreting information? Like how can we tell the difference between propaganda or not? Well, I mean, the, the, the first point there about sort of, okay, what are we talking about? Sort of not wanting to be accused of being a conspiracy theorist and so on. And of course, that's a, a, almost a propaganda tool in its own right yeah. used to close down people who are asking critical questions. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I tend to say is that, you know, people often think of a caricature when they hear the term conspiracy theory. And they think of um, a small group of people planning high levels of intentionality, etc. Yeah. But really what, what you're talking about with propaganda and manipulation is, is simply that powerful actors do uh, get together and they do coordinate information campaigns. And this often involves levels of deception, levels of incentivization and coercion in order to get people to act in a particular way. 
why, but what's their motive on that? Like, why, why would actors of, who already have money, who already have power, why, like, what's their interest, do you think? Well, uh, the example of the tobacco industry is, yeah. is a good one. The tobacco industry um, trying to stem the tide of awareness of the link between tobacco, uh, between smoking, rather, and lung cancer. Um, very large vested interests there, huge money involved. Um, yeah. And it's in their interest to try to maintain their profit margins by delaying awareness as, as long as possible. And of course, in that case for the tobacco industry, they were very successful. In cases of war, it is always very difficult to mobilize populations to support war. Most people don't generally speaking, don't like wars. Um, and what you find certainly during the Cold War is that a lot of the conflicts that were fought, certainly by liberal democracies, were conflicts which um, probably weren't consistent with their own liberal norms. So if you have to tell lies to fight the wars which you think are necessary, then you tell the lies and you tell the lies to your populations. And again, I think you have in the realm of foreign policy, you have a, a, a kind of realpolitik mentality, um, which I've seen in terms of my interface with foreign policy establishment that, well, we've got to do some tough, nasty things in the world. Yeah. And, you know, the publics probably won't support it. So we tell them um, little lies, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, whatever the motivations in relation to the invasion of Iraq, wasn't being driven by weapons of mass destruction. Um, but that was the way in which it could be sold. And it was the way in which it could be sold to the American public and also more broadly to the international community to legitimate it. But that involved had to involve deception because there was not a, a weapons of mass destruction threat from Iraq. So in order for that to happen, what what would you say is the government's relationship? Well, maybe I have two questions for you. What's the government's relationship to media? And what should the government's relationship be to media? Well, the government's relationship to media in a liberal democracy should be one of separation. The media is there, is autonomous, is independent, and is there to hold power to account. And what should happen in an ideal world is that if governments are engaging in propaganda and deception, they get called out for it. Mm -hmm. um, the reality of Western media is that the media doesn't function. It uh, manufactures consent as... Um, well, that was actually Walter Lippmann's phrase from the early part of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, media ends up manufacturing consent for elite interests yeah. um, time and time again. So the system isn't working as it's supposed to be. Here in North America and I, in Europe, I believe, there's a majority of the funding is coming from the government for a lot of the media outlets. And so um it, it just seems hypocritical to try to keep the very <laughs> to try to keep them accountable but they're also funding the existence of the news station yeah well th th there are two aspects to, to media in, in, in liberal democracies there is the the public service broadcasting model where in in a sense that there is you know media is funded through public money mm -hmm. um but within a framework which is structured by the government but such as the BBC in, in the United Kingdom, but it, it's supposed to be notionally independent still, although yeah. it's being funded differently. In in reality, I, I think most uh, sort of close analyses of the BBC argue that ultimately it, it's not really very independent at all from the yeah. British state um, and so on. So you have, that, you have that issue, but then you have the commercial media 
And of course, the the criticism of the commercial media is is that um, essentially you have a very small number of very large, powerful conglomerates dominating most of the mainstream media. And that those interests of those large conglomerates overlap with the interests of government and other powerful elites. And, and that creates ultimately a, a constraint, a, a powerful constraint on the media. You know, it doesn't mean that the media all the time is towing the line, but it does mean that it, it, it operates within these broad parameters. And there might be contestation and challenge between elite groups, and you can see that reflecting in, in media coverage. Um, but the broader sort of outer limits of media performance, it tends to be defined by the broad interest you see either in the major corporations yeah. or, or in government. And I mean, this is a, a very powerful insight from Daniel Hallin's work in Vietnam. He said that media moved into a, a realm of legitimate controversy yeah. okay, on Vietnam when the hawks and the doves were publicly arguing in Washington. But before you had that, the media wouldn't wouldn't touch the subject critically. I guess, why why wouldn't they go there? It, was it the fact that the government was heavy handed with them or threatening funding or but why wouldn't the media in those instances hold them accountable or why haven't they? I mean, the, the, the factors which Herman and Chomsky identify is concentration of ownership, reliance upon advertising, that these create economic constraints on the media. Uh, the journalistic routine of relying upon official sources and elite sources rather than alternative sources. And then the question of ideology as well, that these filters reinforce each other to create a situation where um, sort of all the incentives, as it were, are working against holding power to account. And so unless there's, as it were, blocks within the elite who want an issue, to be yeah. raised, um, journalists won't touch it. And, and, and you see this time and time again, you, you, you see topics which are simply too hot to touch. Yeah. So yeah, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a caution, a fear of going up against power. And actually, this comes to a very important point, part of the answer to your question is that not, over, not only are the incentive structures there, um, and also the routines of journalism, where they tend to go to elite sources, yeah. you also have the question of flack. Yeah. Um, this is something I've experienced personally. And what Herman and Chomsky mean by flack is that when people do start to ask questions which really go up against power, they get subjected to a huge level of criticism and attack. Yeah. Writing in the 80s, Herman and Chomsky referred to um, think tanks, for example, being uh, mechanisms which would throw out flack. Um, and I think that's probably changed in recent years, but yeah. but you certainly find, and, and this has been my own personal experience when I started to look at the, the war in Syria, um, we found ourselves very, very rapidly being attacked by uh, from a number of quarters, um, and then some very, very hostile media coverage against us, extremely hostile. And it was very clear that sort of one, we were right over the target in the sense of an interesting um, yeah. research area. But also, we were very aware that uh, we were coming up against powerful interests. And so we were yeah. very severely attacked. So for all of those reasons, it, it's a tough job for a journalist to uh, start to ask really challenging questions. Well, for sure. You hear this phrase often, um, follow the money. So would you say that that's accurate? Well, in a way, as I say, I think the strength of, for example, the propaganda model um, 
by Herman Chomsky drew together is that it argues that there's, there's no one thing or there's no one single factor which explains yeah. everything that you see it's it's a, it's a combination of everything ranging from ideology through to um corporate interests shaping what journalists do through to the routines of journalism deference to um official sources and then fear of flack that all of these things work and yeah. you know they, they probably it varies from issue to issue I mean, if, if, for example, somebody um, wants to go up against uh, Murdoch's vested interests and that person happens to work for Sky, um, you know, the economic constraints will come to the fore there. But if somebody wants to come up against, for example, the Bush administration's claims about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, um, then they're going to find themselves um, getting feeling a lot of heat from the White House and from think tanks around. And of course, this is what you saw on the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Scott Ritter, for example, former UN weapons inspector, was very vocal but heavily criticised. Yeah. Um, so, in in those situations, those factors come in come into play and um, and make it very difficult to um, ask challenging questions. Not impossible, just very difficult. For sure. So, what would you say? Um, like one thing we're seeing a lot of is censorship, social media censorship, all sorts of kinds of censorship everywhere. Um, would you say that that's healthy, good, needed, or would you say that that's maybe a, a weapon of propaganda? It's definitely a weapon of propaganda. And everything that we've been talking about, it's, it, it's clear to me as somebody who's spent a long time studying the media, that, that is, it has become progressively worse, that um, whatever constraints there were on, on the media during the Cold War or sort of over, you know, last 10, 15 years of, yeah. after the collapse of communism, um, whatever the constraints were there then, and they were significant, things have become much, much worse yeah. uh, in, in the last five, six years maybe 10 years it's difficult actually because i think we have so many moments 9 11 through to the global war on terror and then with covid where you can see this progressive erosion yeah. of in, in a sense the autonomy of journalism yeah. and and the ability of even resource wise for mainstream media to support investigative journalism of a high quality it became becomes more and more what some people describe as journalism where they're simply repeating <laughs> press briefings and, and, and so yeah. on and so forth so it's become more and more difficult to the point where we are now where we've got essentially a, a growing legitimation and tolerance of censorship yeah. And in answer to your question, no, this is not a good thing. This is a very, very bad thing. And, and censorship can be seen in a way as, as the major part of, of, of big propaganda campaigns. Mm. Propaganda campaigns aren't just about promoting a particular understanding through you know, positive promotion, but it also involves shutting people up and stopping people from talking. Yeah, totally. And we have seen this very clearly with COVID-19 and uh, big tech, obviously, um, censoring, deplatforming people. Um, and we see it at the moment with the emergence of online harm legislation, which is still evolving, but it's running across multiple democracies. Yeah. Now, some of this seems to be going in the direction of, of, of attempting to uh, redefine free speech in, in the sense of introducing a category of legal but harmful speech yeah 
and bringing into that and these notions of disinformation, malinformation, dis misinformation, and that these are sort of harmful forms of information which need to be regulated and controlled, essentially censored. Because the scary and, question, the scary thought about that is who is making those decisions? And, and that's exactly. the part that's just up in the air. It, it, exactly. Who, who comes to make the decision? And, and what we have seen is, is the emergence of what some people have described as the counter disinformation industry. Yeah. And there are plenty of academics involved in this, as well as uh, think tanks, NGOs, um, established themselves as arbiters of, of what is disinformation and what is inf what is information, what is yeah. what is legitimate. And yeah, for sure. um, this is this takes us into a world where powerful actors can resource NGOs to do the fact checking, um, define, say, a independent news outlet as, as a disseminator of disinformation. They're labeled as oh, they're dis disseminating uh, disinformation that's harmful. It's disinformation about yeah. COVID. And you can see the kind of the pressure building up. Yeah. Um, on and if you then have legislative moves which allow um, you know, social media companies to be uh, fined for having content which has been defined as disinformation, this takes us to a very dark place yes, in sure. democratic terms. This is not how the basic logic of free speech and democracy is that to go back to uh, John Stuart Mill, um, you need to have all arguments aired and discussed because you can never be absolutely sure which arguments are correct yep. until you've allowed a full discussion. Absolutely. And even if somebody's got the wrong idea or the wrong argument, if you if, if you censor that, you, you stop the opportunity for other people being able to see that argument, yep. to evaluate it, and then see it for what it is. Yeah, I, I would love to get your take. What, what have we learned from COVID? Because it depends where you look. Some places are still preaching that this is the way it is and things are right and then you look on the other side and it's completely the opposite so what have we learned through this last couple of years of covid well i think what we've learned and, and and panda but before i was involved did a lot of good work in terms of pointing out the scientific issues surrounding covid that mm -hmm. things such as lockdown mask mandates and, and so on and claims about how how dangerous the virus was were, were inaccurate uh, and so, you know, we've learned a lot in in the last year and a half. Um, some people learning much quicker yeah. that um, we've had an exaggeration of the threat levels. Um, that these have been used to employ to put in place policies such as mandates, injections, lockdowns, which have had a, a, a hugely negative impact, and that's putting it mildly on, yeah. on our societies. And so we've learned that, but that's in a sense learning that you know, there's been a lot of propagandization around this. But I think we have also seen, um, and I think more people than ever have seen how very eminent, credible experts are subjected to um, smear campaigns, yeah. censorship, and how big a part propaganda can play in our societies. Because I think a lot of people have seen through the propaganda now, they've seen that it was exaggerated. Yeah. They have seen eminent scientists being deplatformed. And of course, the Great Barrington Declaration is, is an excellent example of that. They essentially appear to have initiated a smear campaign against the Great Barrington Declaration, saying that we need to take down these fringe, they call them fringe 
scientists. And this is all in the public domain now. And I, I believe that there are legal cases now being pursued against the US government. And, and this, in a way, is an extraordinary learning moment because yeah. people have seen in a way that perhaps they haven't seen before for a long time how propaganda works, how smear campaigns work. And I, I think, you know, that that's, in a sense, can create a huge um, amount of awareness and understanding amongst uh, publics across democracies that, you know, we have problems with propaganda and the mainstream media doesn't really do the job it's supposed to, and nor does academia as well. Academics have been very slow to. You're very right. Like, it feels as though the veil has kind of been pulled off of a majority of the public's eyes, at least I'd like to hope so, because um, like even in, in the preparation for this uh, interview, in some of the people I was chatting with, one thing I decided to do was um, I Googled, is coffee bad for your eyes? And you look it up and it goes, coffee is bad for your eyes. It can cause blindness, blah, blah. Then I Googled, is coffee good for your eyes? And then I found coffee's great for vision, helps your eyes. And so, <laughs> so the next question I started to ask was, who did that study? Who did that study? Who's paying them? Anyway, my thoughts on that is that the general population now is starting to ask the questions that they need to ask because I think you're right. There's been such a, 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 an eye-opening, awakening almost of, of, the, of the masses because it's just, been, it's just been so radicalized. It's just been so crazy over these last couple of years. In, in the last couple of minutes we have, what, what would you suggest that we do now? How, how do we proceed? How do we step into the future with our kids, our, uh, our schools, our universities? even interpreting the news, what would you suggest? Well, on, on the one hand, we need to fight any drive to increase the levels of censorship. If, if we lose open freedom of expression and debate, we lose democracy, yeah. end of. And so we, we must struggle against that. But having done that, hopefully successfully, we need to then look back at our institutions in society. We need to look back at our political systems. We need to look at our mass media and we need to look at our academia and to say, well, are these really functioning in the way they're supposed to be? Do we need to have a long, hard look at the structure of our media in order to find ways of creating greater independence and autonomy? Do we need to look at the way academia operates? And, and you've raised the point of follow the money. Yeah. Look at the funding streams. Yeah. Uh, do we see academia being powerfully shaped and influenced by powerful backers? backers? Mm -hmm. And I'd say the answer to that is yes. So really a root and branch uh, reform of our institutions to, in a way, get them back to the way they're supposed to operate or how we always thought they were they were yeah. operating. And that's a huge challenge for us. Um, but I think it's a challenge that we need to grasp and yeah. not lose this opportunity now um, because we don't want to blunder into the next state of emergency crisis where even more of our freedoms are taken away and it becomes even potentially permanent, as some people have been suggesting. Um, so we need to act now. Yeah. And in terms of, finally, in terms of how we approach media, I have a, I'm a great believer in the intelligence of, of most people. Most people have the skills and yeah. if they can develop the confidence to think critically. Yeah. Uh, think, where's this information coming from? Who, who might be supplying this yeah. and, and so on in terms of funding, etc. Um, and that can go a long way, I think, to, to people being becoming more critically aware and ultimately more understanding of what's going on and more able to hold their governments and their elected leaders to account, which is 
what democracy is all about, I think. Well, I I can't thank you enough for this interview. Do you have anywhere that we could maybe point people to a website or anywhere that they could grab your resources or kind of get insights on uh, on propaganda? Well, certainly, I mean, if if people go to the Panda website, um, uh, it has a large amount of information, both on COVID, but also we we have a series we've launched on censorship and there's material on propaganda there. There's my own organization, Propaganda Studies, which um, gives access to to material. And I have my own WordPress site, which lists all my academic publications, but organization for Propaganda Studies. And of course, Propaganda and Focus, which is a new online magazine we've set up uh we've got about 28 authors all writing about writing about issues surrounding propaganda and so on so that's a good place for people to go to so those would be the the first three ports of call i think for people excellent well thank you for your time today this has been uh, honestly incredibly insightful dr pierce thank you so much pleasure you are an essential part of this series support truth knowledge and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend Visit returntoreason.tv. There you can subscribe to my newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. You'll be the first to know about fascinating conversations I've had recently and what my research team is working on. If you have a suggestion for the show or would like the reference material for this episode, use the link in the show notes. Experience Return to Reason. Get involved.